Father, you're very great indeed, greater than anyone except those you personally inspired to preach the sermons recorded in Scripture and write Scripture itself, greater than any of us have ever been able to tell. Help us, Lord, see your greatness tonight in this short but sharp challenge you gave your disciples, and help us love you for it and trust you more because of what we've heard. In Jesus' name, amen. Who's my favorite service? You are. This one right here. Now, because you're my favorite service and because this is a small service, we had two pretty full houses this morning, could we do something experimental with Bible reading right now? Okay, never mind. I'm sorry I brought it up. That one. Could we try something? If you could find an English standard version of the Bible, if you brought one, great. If you didn't, maybe it's on your phone. If that doesn't work, grab one from the pew. Because what I'd like to do tonight, before we look into the Gospel of Luke, I'd like to do something that I miss very much from my missionary days in Mexico, and I just want to see how it goes. Okay? It may not work, you may not like it, but how will we know unless we try things? Agreed? We would not have a flag on the moon, folks, if we hadn't tried things, okay? So let's try things. We're going to read the Bible together. We're going to have an alternate reading. I'm going to read a verse, and then you're going to read the next verse, and we will end on the last verse together. Mexican churches, your brothers and sisters in Mexico, do this almost every Sunday. It's just one of the signatures of the Mexican church. We read the Bible together mainly because there's one translation that everybody uses, so we can. So if you don't have the English Standard Version, if you couldn't find one, just listen. Otherwise, it's going to be a cacophony, okay? We don't want the Tower of Babel. We want to read the Bible. Now, everybody with me? I can tell how experimental this is and how uneasy you are about it. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Folks, have you heard how many Baptists it takes to change a light bulb? The answer is change. Why should we change anything, okay? <laughs> None of this came up in the two morning services. Some of you are making immediate plans to never come back in the evening and only come in the morning. My apologies. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We have a very short passage in, in Luke. So I want to read a little more scripture with you. Matthew chapter 5 is the Beatitudes, and we're going to read all the way down to verse 13, okay? So I'm going to read the first verse, you're going to read the second, I'll read the third, and we'll keep going until we come down together and read verse 13 together. Everybody clear on the procedure? Here we go. Speaking of Jesus, Matthew, who's one of the 12 apostles, one of Jesus' first disciples and one of those special 12 that were chosen according to Mark to be with Jesus and who was sent out to preach by Jesus. Now Matthew is with them by the Sea of Galilee up on a mountain, and he reports this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. And altogether, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Father, may your word speak to us as we hear it. May it serve to make us love you and obey you and trust you more. In Christ's name, amen. We're actually in the Gospel of Luke. If you want to open your Bibles to Luke 14, just two short verses, and surely even a Baptist pastor could preach a short sermon if he only has two verses to teach. We'll see. Here's what's happening in Luke's Gospel. Jesus is going to begin to set out the terms of discipleship. Jesus isn't running a social club. He's not actually soliciting easy believism kind of followers. He's going to give his whole life, literally his life, and through his resurrection guarantee people the spiritual power to truly know God and to follow him for life. But he's setting out the terms to make people count the cost. And sometimes it's hard to tell the genuine article from the phonies. Years ago, I heard an interview I never forgot because an, the executive of a golf club manufacturing company was being interviewed. His company is responsible for some of the most high-end golf clubs you can buy in the United States. Top-of-the-line stuff, stuff that's on the tour. And what had happened is... Uh, Manufacturer on the other side of the world had gotten so good at counterfeiting his product, they brought him in and brought him several fake clubs along with a few of his own and laid them out on a table and invited him to see if he, who had given his professional life to building these clubs, could tell the difference. He was shocked that he couldn't. The counterfeits were so good Someone who should have been able at a moment's notice and certainly with given as much time to study as he wanted, should have been able to tell the difference, could not. And if you read through the Gospels, and especially if you read the first letter of John, you're going to discover that Jesus and the apostles both say that it's very difficult to tell the phonies from the real disciples of Jesus in this life as well. You can't always tell. And maybe you've had that disappointment. I have, frankly, and recently. Of someone I'd known and loved for quite a long time who eventually is exposed for some reason there was something that entered their life or was always in their heart that eventually made them walk away from Christ, denounce what they once preached and what they once taught others. It's sad, but it's true. And that's why Luke 14 is so difficult. If you were here last week... You may remember, 
Jesus said some of the hardest things ever said by anybody in the words that we read in Luke chapter 14, just before this cryptic saying, we're going to read in a moment, also about salt. Jesus says, essentially, if there's anything or anyone you love more on this earth than me, you won't have me at all. You won't really be my disciple. You won't really be saved. And he names the things that are most precious to us. Family, mother and father, children and siblings, comfort and peace and safety. Money, he says, if you don't renounce all of your possessions, you can't be one of my disciples. Now let's just think about those three things, family, comfort, and money. Let's be very realistic. I know it's church and we're trained kind of in church to say the cliche thing that we know is right whether we believe it or feel it or not. Family, comfort, and money. Isn't that really just about all we want out of life? If you could have peace with your entire family, all of them, including the tough ones, the ones that don't speak to you, the ones that are difficult and cruel to you, if you could have peace with them, if you could have safety and comfort in your home to enjoy them and enough money not to worry about anything else, wouldn't that be a pretty good life? It would. That's what we're all working on. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying your family. There's nothing wrong with wanting peace and comfort. That's a natural human inclination. There's nothing wrong with needing and wanting and making money. Everybody does. Everybody must. But Jesus warns, if any of those good gifts from God come between us and the Lord himself, we'll lose it all. And most of all, we'll lose him. That's in Luke chapter 14. And then, at the end of Luke 14, he says two more little verses, and they're frankly a little bit cryptic. And they're right at the end of this scathing speech where he lays out the terms of discipleship and he's inviting the crowd to think carefully about themselves. Think carefully about what they really love. Think about what they're willing to sacrifice if they're forced to choose between Jesus and family, between Jesus and money, between Jesus and comfort. And at the end, he says in verse 34, Luke 14, verse 34, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And all of God's people said, huh? <laughs> What's he talking about? And why is this at the very end of this hard, difficult challenge about counting the cost of following him. Well, it's at the end for a reason. I really could have taught it to you last week, but this image that he's using is so important and so specific that just for my own sake and to make it more understandable, hopefully for you, I wanted to dedicate a sermon to it all by itself. Jesus said in the very beginning, salt is what? Salt is good. You agree? Salt is wonderful. There are very few things in this world that don't taste better with a little bit of salt. 
And it's much more important in the ancient world, actually, than it is to us. We could get by a little more easily this in 2020 than they could in the ancient world. Salt was hard to come by in the ancient world. You and I can run right down the street to Stater Brothers and buy a giant bag or barrel of Morton salt, and for just a few dollars we can have salt really for the rest of our lives, probably. Not so easy in the ancient world. It was dredged out of salty marshes, and they had to work with it so that they could have some salt, and they used it for all kinds of things that are more important probably then than they are now. They had no refrigeration, so salt was used to preserve things. They used it in small doses to fertilize the soil, to improve the soil below the surface. They used it on manure piles, believe it or not. Jesus is going to, did you see that? A little bit shocking. It says it is no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. Well, what in the world is that about? Well, fertilizer in the ancient world, in the absence of Home Depot, fertilizer was manure, but manure spoils rather quickly, they would throw salt on the manure pile to make it last. They would use it to season things, and bakers used it in their ovens. They would coat the, wa- coat the walls of their earthen ovens with salt, which made the fire what it should be until eventually the salt gave out. And the reason the salt gave out in the ancient world, the reason Jesus says something here that doesn't make any sense to us is because salt is different in our day. Look again in verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Well, that doesn't make much sense to us because we live in industrialized times and the salt you buy from Morton's will never lose its taste. You can keep that forever and it'll always taste salty. But are any of you fancy enough to shop at a place like Whole Foods? If you are, they'll sell you a little bag of salt about this big for about 48 bucks probably if it's it's Whole Foods. And this is salt from the shores of France, it will say. And if you look carefully at that bag, that artisanal, handcrafted, whatever salt, you're going to discover that that little bag of salt has something that the big barrel of Morton's doesn't. That bag of salt has an expiration date. It will lose its saltiness. Its flavor will change. It'll eventually stop tasting like salt because since they're dredging it directly out of nature and not processing it very much, That salt at Whole Foods that you're paying so much money for is like the salt of the ancient world. It's mixed with other chemicals. In the ancient world, it was mixed with gypsum. And everybody who had salt in ancient Israel knew that it was only a matter of time before it was worthless. Did you see how worthless it is? This might be one of the hardest insults in the Bible if you apply it to people. Verse 35, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. In other words, salt that has been corrupted, that it's lost its saltiness, is literally good for nothing. And when Jesus taught it in Matthew, he said the only use for it is to throw it out and let people walk over it. It's of no use at all. And you're asking yourself, what does this have to do with discipleship? Because that's what Jesus has been talking about. 
Let me very quickly tell you. Jesus' point is this. He's addressing the crowds because he wants to make sure that those who hear him become real disciples. And real disciples, Jesus is saying, using this word picture, real disciples are useful to Jesus and to the world around them. All the different uses for salt that were so treasured in the ancient world. Some people believe even that Roman soldiers were paid with salt. That's carried over to our day, so we say that someone is worth their salt. Have you ever heard that? That means that they're worth their pay, they're worth their their compensation. Jesus is calling for his disciples to be genuine with the understanding that if you're really a Christian, not a Christian of lip service, not a Christian of easy belief or easy profession, that you will be useful to Jesus and to the world around you from which he saved you. And I'm going to be really shorter than usual, but I hope to be very practical. If your concept of Christianity stops with you are forgiven by Jesus, you're missing half the story. Jesus forgives disciples and keeps them in the same corrupt, dying world that he saved them from so that they will not only be forgiven, but so that we will be useful. If God's whole point was enjoying you in heaven, and that's definitely what he's working on, God made you and saved you so that he could enjoy you and you could enjoy him forever. That's the final chapter. That's where all of this is headed. But if that's all he wanted... It occurred to me that if that's all he wanted, he would have taken me straight to glory as soon as he saved me. Why does he leave us here with all these struggles and with all these challenges and with all this suffering, with all this uncertainty, with all these constant choices of choosing whether to love him or love money, love him less than our family, love him less than our comfort? Why does he keep disciples in the world? Because he wants us to be useful. You're here literally for his purposes, for a brief time to bring his life, his message, his character, his purpose, his generosity, all that he is to represent him here on earth. Being useful to the Lord and being useful to other people is the greatest privilege you'll ever have in your life. You don't have to be a professional minister. To be useful to Jesus. Some of the finest people I've ever met in all the countries I've traveled to are ordinary people, unknown except to a few people in their local churches and their little spheres of influence, completely anonymous to almost the entire world, but tremendously useful to Jesus. We had families here this morning and, and a few widows, a few singles, who Only a few people in our church know they're that low profile. But if you get to know their lives, you get to know their stories, you get to know how they love people and how they care for people and the difference they make in their little corner of the world, it's very obvious why the Lord has kept them here. They're bringing the light of the gospel and the character of Christ to bear in situations where no one else is making that light shine. Being useful is a privilege. And not everybody really enjoys it. You ever been in a situation where somebody should have been by their 
job useful to you and just didn't want to be? Ever got that kind of service? I don't like to mention the name because we all have bad days and I don't want to ruin a company's reputation even further, but years ago my wife and I were having dinner at one of those restaurants that nobody goes to, you just end up there, okay? Somebody emailed me after the morning service and said, is it such and such a restaurant? And I said, yes, exactly right. And I'm like, well, you could probably imagine, but let's not go there, okay? We're just in one of those restaurants because we tried three other places and uh, we couldn't get in there, so we ended up at this other place. And this happened so long ago, but it stuck with me because the person who was supposed to wait on us so clearly did not want to be there and be useful at all. The waitress sighted us from across the restaurant and did this. Oh boy, this is going to be just a delightful dining experience. She marched over, stood in front of the table and said, just like this, what do you want? Okay, well, we ordered dessert, two cups of coffee. Without a word, she marched back, came back about half an hour later. I mean, she really didn't want to help us slapped the chocolate cake down on the far end of this big circular table we were sitting at and marched off. So I thought I was on some kind of hidden camera show and I kind of looked around like, is, there, is this serious? Do people actually act like this? And got up and picked a little plate up, brought it around, had our little cake. And it was kind of one of the most awkward and embarrassing, made me feel bad for us, made me feel bad for her. She just didn't want to be useful. Do you know any Christians like that? They're just barely hanging on to Christ and haven't really found any joy or have just gotten tired of being useful to the Lord and to others. Jesus says that the signature of discipleship is that people who are really following him always remain useful to him. That's the second thing he wants to show us. For Luke 14, verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And hopefully after that long, geeky explanation about salt in the ancient world, you now know the answer. Once salt has lost its taste, that's it. In the ancient world, it was mixed with these other chemicals, and it was only a matter of time until its saltiness, its influence, what made it good and useful was lost. What's Jesus trying to say here? That real disciples the context of this second half of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. They pay the price to remain useful. They keep themselves separate from the world. They don't allow themselves to be corrupted. They remain influential without being influenced by the world they're serving in a way that ruins them and makes them useless to God and the people around them because disciples who become like the world do it no good. That's what Jesus' point is. If you're a Christian and God has left you here after forgiving you, if you become like the world around you, if you adopt the fallen world's way of thinking and loving and acting and serving and giving and forgiving, you'll do it no good. You might as well be in heaven because you're literally of no earthly good. And I can find those examples in the Bible. I want to show you two. 
two very different kinds of groups of Christians. The first is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's the backstory, and this is one of the hardest verses in the New Testament. Paul had preached in Corinth, a city that was legendary even in the depraved ancient world for its debauchery. Corinth was so bad that it became a verb. They would say, in the ancient world, you Corinthianized, and that meant you just completely went off the rails and indulged yourself, indulged your flesh. In that unlikely place, Paul had preached the gospel, and a real church filled with real Christians had sprouted up. But some of them had stayed mixed in with the world. Not all of them, obviously, had gone on to maturity. They remained immature, and some of them were acting just as what they had once been. They, had, they were acting like pagans, and the where they were doing that the most notably was at the Lord's Supper, at communion. See, one of the first things that Jesus commanded his disciples, one of our first priorities is baptism, a first step of obedience, Pastor Jim said, and then he said, when you have a meal together, do this in remembrance of me. We're not told how often to do it, we're just told to do it, that we should gather as local churches and remember the Lord's body and remember the Lord's blood and look back at the cross. That's communion. It's a memorial service for someone who's alive and is actually going to return. Well, the Corinthians, in their wickedness, in their corruption, had taken communion and made it into Basically, an element of church division. Rich people in the church were showing up with a lot of food and getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and refusing evidently to share with poor people in the congregation. They were using the Lord's Supper. They were using communion as a place to flaunt their wealth. It was dividing the church. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he's trying to correct all that, and this is why it's so hard. What he says is happening to them because of this sinfulness is shocking in the 21st century. Look, Paul wrote to them, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Why don't you just take that sentence in? Number one Bible reading tip, slow down. Paul has been correcting them in the length, that length in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you want a modern picture, they've turned a family memorial service into a beer bash. What should have been a time of respect and honor and grateful remembrance has turned into a party that is actually tearing this church apart. Not to honor the Lord, but to honor themselves according to their preferences. And Paul says to them, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. It's a small group. Can you tell me in plain English what Paul is telling them is happening in their church? It's okay to talk back. And you can read the whole, you can read the whole paragraph if it helps. What has happened? What is God doing in their church in response to their irreverence? He's making some of them weak, some of them sick. And what is he doing to some? He's taking their lives. Really? He does that? I'd like to remind you of a quiet little story in Acts chapter 5 of a, some of the first Christians, of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. 
they lied to God about an offering they were giving. And one by one, in the space of three hours, they both dropped dead. And Acts chapter 5 says it was the young men in the church who took them out one at a time and buried them together. I've always smiled when I read that a little bit and thought to myself, it's hard to reach teenagers in every age. That had to be the most revived on fire for God teenage group in the history of the Christian church. God is killing people at our church. This is what it looks like in 1 Corinthians 11 for Christians to lose their way, return to the world they once knew, not keep themselves apart from it, and suffer for it. Look, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, Paul says, if you would correct yourselves, if you would have self-awareness and repent of all this, if you would stop this foolishness, God wouldn't have to deal with you this way. And that's what every parent wants. No loving parent wants to discipline their child. We would much rather our child come to their senses and stop whatever terrible thing they're doing. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Please understand what Paul's saying. Here is a bad example of Christians who have been saved in the world but have become so much more like it that God's best move is to take some of them home. And that'll be a mercy. And this sounds so old-fashioned and so alien to modern hearing that God would actually take some of his children home rather than allow them to ruin his good name on earth, it happens. That's why Paul says when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's a bad example. Would a good one be more encouraging? James chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. You're going to say, I thought this was going to be more encouraging. Well, it is. James is saying, if you think you're really walking with God, but your tongue is out of control, your spirituality is of no good to anybody, it's worthless. Here's the positive example. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself, what's it say? unstained from the world. That salt that doesn't lose its, say, its flavor. That salt that remains useful. Paul says that religion, spirituality, that God genuinely accepts, that God thinks is pure, that God sees as undefiled, is to do quiet little things like visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Why that? Nobody's ever going to get famous. Nobody is ever going to increase their standing very much in this world looking after orphans and widows, especially in the ancient world. Orphans and widows were so defenseless in the ancient world for the most part that they were very close to dying. And Paul said genuine Christianity goes to them in the time of their affliction, and genuine Christianity keeps itself unstained from the world. We have people like that in our church, actually quite a few of them. 
Some of you are some of the finest Christians, the best pictures of Christ I've known in my entire life. Because you bear with a lot of suffering with grace. You have physical and emotional and financial pressure and it doesn't keep you from acting like Christ. We have some that have dedicated themselves their whole lives since I've known them and I've known some of you for quite a long time now. You've dedicated yourself to serving people who can't serve you in return. You've dedicated yourself to loving and encouraging people who simply cannot pay you back. That's genuine Christianity. That's what it means to be useful to God. And then Jesus closes, and so do I, with these words. Verse 34, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Last sentence. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And this is again one of those odd sayings from Jesus. What does it mean? Garner translation? Not all of you can handle this. That's what he's saying. I'm saying this to the whole crowd, Jesus is saying, but not all of you will be able to listen to me. You can all hear me. Not all of you are going to be willing to listen. So a third mark of a disciple is this. A real disciple of Jesus is a person or people who listen to Jesus and follow him at any cost. That's what Jesus is challenging us with in that last sentence. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So listen, I am I'm in dead earnest tonight about two things, because in the last few weeks I've seen a few Christians fall away. And it's been shocking. And very, very heartbreaking. So my invitation to you is to deal with the Lord, seriously and for yourself. To hear Him saying that following Him is not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worthwhile for you to continue to serve the Lord as best you can with the time and the money and the life you have left. I heard a pastor say years ago, and it stuck with me, he was from Texas and he liked to rhyme things, which normally annoyed me, but this stuck with me. He said that your purpose in life could be found in your scars and your stars. Scars are the things that have hurt you and maybe that Jesus has healed or is healing. Stars are those highlight moments, those things you're good at, the things that you obviously make a difference, things that set you apart, make you stand out from other people. You only have so much time, you only have so much money, and you have your own story. And what God has been orchestrating in your life, if you're really his disciple, is your particular set of circumstances. And what he asks you now, before he takes you home, is that you be useful. And what I've seen in these last few weeks with people that are very dear to me is people run into something, fall in love with something, fall in love with someone, and put that thing or that person ahead of Jesus and quietly walk away. Whether they're real disciples or not, it's too early to tell and it's not for me to say. But this right here, this doesn't look good. That's why Jesus lays out all this hard teaching in Luke 14 and wraps it up saying, if you can hear this, pay attention. 
If you can hear this, and this makes sense to you, listen to me and come after me at any cost because people who were following Jesus are always useful to Jesus and to others. You may not know what your purpose is, but you don't have to wonder. God doesn't play hard to get. If you want to follow the Lord and be useful to Him and useful to other people, He'll tell you. And some of the wondering and some of the struggling and some of the praying might just be part of his process to make you into the person he wants you to be. And to be clear, for those of you who are, who are older, some people in our church are less active than they used to be, but they're no less useful. We had a great woman in this church a few years ago, went to be with the Lord. Her name was Linda Stevens. A long, long time ago, she had a crippling illness that one of the most painful things I've ever seen slowly shut her body down. But with the strength she had left, to the very end, Linda could do two things. She could call on the phone, she could send emails, and she could pray. And we miss her. I miss those notes, I miss those emails. And Lord knows how much I miss those prayers. Active and useful are different things. Not all of us have the energy we once did, but every single person, young and old, whether you don't have much yet and haven't figured much out in life because you're very young, you still don't even really know who you are, or you know physically your best days are behind you, if God still has you here, it's not a matter of activity or energy. It's a matter of usefulness. And if you're really following Jesus, you can always be useful to him. Let's pray. I trust we're all believers here tonight. Could I just give you a moment to talk to the Lord about your usefulness?
And if by chance you're not sure of your relationship with Jesus, can I invite you to put everything else aside and trust him? Ask him to forgive your sins and make you a Christian. What a difference we could make on earth and in heaven if we all bond together and band together to be useful to the Lord. Father, thank you for this little third service. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. There is potential here, Lord, and blessing and love and mercy and justice and all kinds of good things, Lord, that you know and that you do. It's all represented here. Not a single one of us can do much, but in your name, we can actually do great things. We can bring your gospel, your mercy, your love, your justice, your holiness, your forgiveness to bear in difficult situations in our neighborhoods, in our families, wherever you've placed us. So help us, Lord, go forward tonight with the confidence that you want us not only forgiven, but useful. Make us useful, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name and Cross Point's name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Good night.